Good morning. Would you please rise for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 1 through 23. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1107, where the words will be on the screen behind us. Acts 26, verses 1 through 23. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated.
Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Acts 26. If you have one in front of you or want to use the, the Bible in the rack in front of you. As many of you know, uh, my family and I are from Nebraska originally. And one of our favorite things to do when we're home visiting family is to go to the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha. It's a pretty incredible zoo, and you don't think of Nebraska as being known for much anything besides college football, but it's a, it's a, it's a great zoo. Inside is the world's largest indoor desert, which is pretty cool, but underneath that is one of my favorite exhibits, and it's called Kingdoms of the Night. Kingdoms of the Night. You can visit that exhibit in the daytime and observe nocturnal creatures, creatures who sleep during the day and are awake at night. You can observe them during the daytime in their normal habitat and activity because when the sun goes down at night outside, they turn the lights on inside. And when the sun comes up the next morning, the lights go out, the animals wake up and and come out and, and, you know, they're in their groove. Uh, which is pretty ingenious little system there. Um, you see patterns of activity that are completely opposite to the real world outside, yet very consistent with the world that they live in in this kingdom of the night. Now, the closest thing these animals have ever seen to the sun is a 100-watt light bulb, but they don't know the difference, uh, unless you were to bring them outside during the daytime. Imagine that happening, growing up, living in this you know, kingdom that's out of sync with reality, where the, the brightest thing you see to the sun is a light bulb, and then coming out into the daytime for the first time. You know, how blinded you would be by that first glimpse of the real sun, and then how different everything would look under that light. Um, you know, how out of step the normal patterns of life would be, and yet how over time those patterns would adjust to the real world, to the world as it really is under the sun rather than the kingdom of the night. That experience of going from the kingdom of darkness, if you will, and seeing the sun for the first time as you come into the kingdom of light is pretty similar to what the the Apostle Paul experienced when he met Uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus one day. It's the story he tells as he stands before King Agrippa in the Bible passage that we're looking at this morning in Acts 26. It may have been daylight outside when Paul was walking on that road, but he was walking in darkness, in a spiritual darkness, uh, as he reviled Christ, as he sought to harm God's people. And then one day as he's traveling along, Jesus turns on the light. And he is, what he sees is so brilliant and so bright, he's very literally blinded by it. His eyes don't work anymore. And then when he's healed a few days later, what he sees will never be the same again. The world looks completely different under that light, the light of Jesus. So what is it that changed Paul's life forever? What is it that opened his eyes to see the darkness for what it was and that showed him a new way to live and gave him a new purpose in life? What was it that gave him hope amid a broken world? A hope he was so convinced of 
and so dependent on that he would willingly stand on trial several years later, as in our story, bearing witness to this hope and willing to face imprisonment for it and even death because his life was so dependent on it. What was the source and power of Paul's hope for life? And can we find that same hope today? The light switch for Paul, as we read in this story, was his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. It is the resurrection of Jesus where we find hope and light for a broken and dark world. And that is why we celebrate Easter. So please pray with me as we look at this passage and seek to hear from the Lord this morning. Lord, you have gathered us this morning, and we trust that you have a word for us from your word, from the scriptures, and the Apostle Paul's testimony of meeting the resurrected Christ. Lord, would you shine that light into our hearts this morning? Would you open our eyes to see you for who you truly are, to see the world as it really is under your reign and in the process of being redeemed and made new by Christ? So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear your voice, your spirit this morning, and be honored among us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you think about the whole idea of Easter... Um, not talking about you know bunnies and, and chocolate and so on, though I have no problem with chocolate. Um, but you know, if you think about what's really being claimed, what's really at stake in the idea of Easter, it's a pretty bold claim that a man who died, who was buried and really dead for three days, came alive again. That's pretty crazy. If you, you know, if you met me on the street and I told you I have this friend and so on, you would look at me like I had four heads or something. Yet that's the claim of Easter. That Christ died, was buried, and on the third day rose from the grave. That the God who made everything sent his eternal son into his creation to rescue it, to rescue rebellious humans who've rejected God as king, that this son lived the life that we couldn't live in perfect holiness and faithfulness to his father, that he died the death that we deserved to die on the cross for our sins, and that he sealed his work of salvation by rising from the dead on the third day, conquering death and giving new life to all who will believe. That is an incredibly bold claim. And not everybody believes it. But what no one can dispute about the message of Easter is the suggestion that we live in a broken world. If Easter is hope for a broken world, we can all for sure at least agree on the broken part, can't we? You know, if you think about, you know, there's a problem with life on earth as we know it. Life where our relationships are, are scarred by gossip by competition, by insecurity, betrayal, divorce, abuse, loneliness, isolation, where our bodies are marred by addiction, by disease or cancer, by just decay and old age. Things don't work the way they once did. 
where our society is marked by oppression and greed and violence and deceit. This world doesn't work the way it was supposed to, where our hearts are filled with envy and jealousy and bitterness and pride and selfishness and anger and lust. We long for deliverance from these problems. We want to find some way out of life when it turns south like that. Some light amid the darkness. We're all looking for hope in a broken world. And some of us think we may have found it here or there. Maybe it's our wealth or our work or our relationships. And to be honest, when things are well, it's easy to kind of live a carefree life where I'm, I'm not worrying about those kinds of things. But we all know, if we're honest, that good days don't last forever. And if there's any doubt on that question, we all look forward to the very bad day of death. No one gets a, an escape card for that one. We encounter a lot of different problems in life. This is a dark and broken world. Is there any hope to it? Well, the problem underneath all of our problems is that left to ourselves, we're incapable of fixing them. You know, Kim bore witness about that as she tried to take control of life herself. Um, we're incapable of fixing any of our problems, ultimately, ultimately. And the reason for that is that this is not just a broken world, it's also a dark world. And I'm talking about spiritual darkness. A spiritual darkness that blinds us from seeing God, that binds us to Satan's power, that blocks us from... God's forgiveness, and that bans us from enjoying eternal life with Him. And this darkness is what the Bible calls sin, or disobedience to God. Much of the brokenness that we live with and we get frustrated and angry about and, and uh, that we weep about stems in one way or another from this spiritual darkness, either from our own sin that we commit or just from the fact that this world has been fractured since the first humans turned their back on God. That's been the story of human history. This is our game. We try to bump God off of his throne and we try to take his place because we think we would do a much better job running things than him. You put it in political terms, we've committed high treason against the king of heaven. An insurrection. That's the human story. That's your story, my story. And for that reason, our biggest problem is not the relational dysfunction in our lives, nor our failing bodies, nor even our troubled society. Our biggest problem, the problem underneath all of our problems, is that left to ourselves, we are under the righteous judgment of a holy God. We have committed high treason against heaven. We've chosen darkness over light, as scripture puts it. Uh, and the sad truth is that many of us like it in the dark. We like running things our ways. We like doing what we like doing and pretending as though God doesn't exist, or if he does, at least he doesn't care. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 3 describes it this way. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, we hear lines like that and we're thinking, surely, you know, 
that uh, he must be talking about somebody else. You know, for instance, when a, like when a fire alarm goes off at work and you're sitting there and you are, you know, buried in your task and now this fire alarm is going off and you're thinking, well, surely that doesn't apply to me. You know, it's obviously a false alarm. I can just keep doing what I'm doing. Everybody else can go outside in the cold. That doesn't apply to me. And then the fireman comes along and says, get out of your office. This is for you too. That's what we think when we read these kinds of lines. But the reality is this description is true of all of us. This warning is for all of us. Apart from relationship with God, we are a sinful people living in darkness and deserving God's judgment. We need a hope that is far more powerful than anything we can muster up in and of ourselves. We need the hope of new life. The hope of resurrection. We need God to act in his mercy and his grace to make us new. To make all things new. And the message of Easter is that that is precisely what God has done in the cross and resurrection. He's acted in his mercy and grace to bring new life to unworthy sinners. He's not left us in our brokenness, in our darkness, but sent his son to rescue us by giving his life for us on the cross and then conquering death through the resurrection. That was Paul's hope as he stood on trial. That was the hope that changed his life. It's the hope he had been declaring throughout Asia and Europe, going around to all of the cities, telling people about this King Jesus. It's the hope he gave testimony to before King Agrippa in Acts 26. The the Jewish leaders who opposed Christ and Christianity had pretty much had it with Paul because God was blessing his ministry and a lot of people were coming to know Christ through him. And so they plotted to get rid of him just like they had plotted to get rid of Jesus by getting the Roman authorities to kill him. That was their goal. And so as Paul stands on trial and gives His defense in the story we read, he hangs everything on the resurrection of Jesus. He hangs his entire argument, his entire hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says in Acts 26, uh, verses 6 through 8, And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This promise... Our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. What hope is that, Paul? Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul's hope was anchored securely in the resurrection of Christ. That was the power that gave him hope. And again, you know, we can find this pretty incredible Um, that someone could rise from the dead. Uh, The Jews in Paul's day didn't so much have a problem with that idea. They knew that if if God made the world, certainly he can remake it. And so the the possibility of resurrection isn't, you know, know, science tells us people don't rise from the dead. Well, we don't need science to tell us that. When somebody's in the grave, they stay in the grave. You know, The resurrection isn't about what's scientifically possible. It's about what's divinely possible. Can God do it? And then 
whether or not history tells us that it happened, the testimony of history. Did God do it? And, and the Jews, they got that first part. You know, can God raise the dead? Yes, if he can make the creation, he can remake it. They didn't have a big problem with that. In fact, Israel had long been looking forward to a day in the end when God would raise everyone from the dead and usher in his new reign over a new heavens and new earth. What they couldn't believe and what they had a big problem with is that God would fulfill that promise by through a crucified and resurrected king. That he would take that promised hope and break into the present with it through his son Jesus. They had no category for that. Their problem with Paul was his claim that God had done precisely that and that the resurrection had begun in Jesus. It had happened. New life was already available through faith and only through faith in him. So why did Paul cling so closely to this resurrection? You know, something that seems so impossible to us and so improbable to the ancient Jews. Well, first, because he believed it was true. He wasn't putting his hope in something that was clearly a lie. He believed it was true. You know, first, it was consistent with the scriptures. The scriptures had foretold this would happen, as he tells us in verse 22. Uh, And second, and this is kind of a big deal, because he had seen it himself. He had met the resurrected Christ on his road to Damascus. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that after Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive when Paul was writing this, which means that if Paul was lying, they could have come and said, you know, here... You know, we we don't agree with your testimony, but the witnesses were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus also appeared to me. Christ appeared to many people uh, after he had risen from the dead. And Paul believed it was true that this had happened. But his hope in the resurrection wasn't just agreement with a set of facts. It wasn't just that, yeah, I I agree that it happened. He clings to the resurrection of Jesus because through it, God changed his life. God changed his life. God took a man darkened by sin, dead in his transgressions, and breathed new life into him, resurrection life, raising his soul from the dead, By the Holy Spirit. Through faith in Jesus, God transformed Paul from a self-righteous rebel. And everybody knew what he was like beforehand. He he tells that in his testimony. If, If they're willing to admit it, they know how I acted as a Pharisee, as this religious zealot going around persecuting the church. God transformed Paul from an enemy of the church, an enemy of Christ, to a lowly, joyful servant, who proclaimed Christ to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty significant life change, isn't it? Listen again to Paul's story of meeting the resurrected Jesus. This is Acts 26, 12 through 20. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, 
About noon, O king, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is a 180 transformation. To leave Jerusalem an enemy of the cross and return the next time one of the chief champions of it. Paul's life was radically transformed by Christ. Everyone who knew him knew the difference. And as he described it, the illustration or the imagery he uses in this passage, it's from coming, he turned from darkness to light. From darkness to light. He came out of the kingdom of the night, if you will, where life was upside down and the patterns were all out of sync with reality into the light of the real world above, the world as it really is, where the living Christ reigns from heaven and is ready to receive our worship. Paul was so convinced of the resurrection and so changed by its power, he would willingly face imprisonment and even death than to deny it or to stop speaking about it. That Such is the transformation of his heart. Now, for Paul to deny the resurrection, it would be like us denying the existence of the sun. You know, you can see it, for one thing, but not only can you see it, you see everything in its light. That was the power of the resurrection for Paul. Not only could he see it, he saw everything in light of the new work that God was doing through Christ. Something more real than anyone in the darkness can imagine. Paul reminds us in verse 22, the Old Testament scripture said Christ would suffer and then as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And once you've seen that light, then to go on living as though Jesus is not king, as though He's not risen from the dead or he's not making his people new would be like coming out of the kingdom of the night and still trying to keep the old patterns of you know sleeping and, and activity. It's out of sync with reality. It doesn't fit the world as it truly is where Christ, the living Christ, reigns. To meet the resurrected Jesus is to be changed forever. We heard a beautiful picture of that. This morning, as Kim shared, how God reached into her life and, and changed her, her hopes, her dreams, her satisfaction, her security. 
and how he's still changing her and each one of us to meet the resurrected Jesus, to trust the resurrected Jesus, is to live with a hope that God has dealt decisively with the problem beneath our problems, with the problem of sin. Again, we want to hang out at the surface with all of the things that don't work the way we want them to. There's a deeper problem, and the resurrection of Christ deals with it head on. First, Jesus deals with sin's power in our life through his resurrection. Look again at verse 18. As the good news, as the gospel of Christ goes forth from Paul, as he proclaims that that Christ is real, that he is the king, and that he gave his life so that by his grace we might know the Lord, be forgiven of our sins, and find new life through his spirit. As Paul is sent to proclaim that message, and people come from darkness to light, he also says in verse 18 that God is going to turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God. Through the resurrection of Jesus, he breaks sin's power. So instead of walking in rebellion against God and profaning Christ and persecuting his followers, Paul begins to walk in joyful obedience to God. He finds a new rhythm where life actually honors the Lord instead of dishonors him. He counted his life as worth nothing if only he might testify to the gospel of God's grace. His pattern was a pattern that came from living in the light of Christ. So the resurrection deals with sin's power. Second, it deals not just with the power, but with sin's penalty. Again, in verse 18, Paul found in Jesus, he found the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. God's judgment was against us because of our sin. Paul found forgiveness. He found a canceling of the debt he owed to the Lord through Jesus Christ. Now, there is nothing, I think, more crippling to the human heart than the guilt and shame of having done something wrong and then the fear of being rejected for having done that wrong thing and living in that guilt and shame. We spend so much of our lives trying to make up for our own mess, trying to keep people happy, trying to appease others, um, making promises that we're never going to let them down again, and trying to make up for it when we do. And that's precisely and quite sadly the way we often try then to interact with God. We think he's sitting in heaven, tapping his feet, you know, wagging his finger at us, waiting for us to get our act together, and then he'll love us and bless us. Nothing, nothing could be farther from the truth of how forgiveness works. Forgiveness of sin comes not from what we do for, for God, but from what God has done for us in Christ. And if there's one thing you remember this morning, I want that to be the one thing. It's not what you do for God that makes you right. It's what God has done for us through Jesus, through his cross and his resurrection. Elsewhere, Paul says, Colossians, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, and that's true of all of us, When you were dead, 
God made you alive with Christ. He gave you new life. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. It is through the cross of Christ that there is forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus took our sin, our shame, our guilt, our fear on himself, everything wrong with this broken world, and paid the debt in full, we are free from that penalty. We are free from that penalty. We're cleansed from the stains of our impurities. And we are free to love and serve God and each other without fear, without having to worry about where am I at with you? And do I have to keep up the show or not? I know I have been cleansed. I have been forgiven. I have been made whole by Christ. That's what matters. I'm free to love you even if I get nothing in return. We who trust in Christ are forgiven through his death and resurrection. So the resurrection deals with sin's power. It deals with sin's penalty. Finally, it deals also with sin's presence. Because in the end, God will completely wipe it out. Paul tells us how he not only found forgiveness, but a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, Paul found the family he had always been looking for. The family of God. A family he was made for. And as part of God's family, he will enjoy all the privileges and inheritance of God's family. A new heavens, a new earth in the presence of God where sin will be no more. That struggle that we live with day in and day out, it will not last forever. The problem beneath our problems will be completely vanquished. And the fruit of sin is death. That's what it, that's its reward, that's its payment, that's its penalty. And death is a very real enemy in this fallen world. It's the final enemy. But for those who place their faith in Christ, who recognize, yes, that they are sinners, that there's nothing they can do to make it up to God, but that Christ has done all they need, that his life, his death, his resurrection was in fact enough. Death is not the final part of that story. It's not the last word. Life in Jesus, life with God forever. That is the final word. And if God can do that, if God, through the death and resurrection of his son, can deal with the problem beneath our problems, if he can deal with sin, forgive us, change our lives, bring us into relationship with him, then how might the resurrection of Christ give hope for our surface problems? How might it deal with the problems that we think about day in and day out, if he can deal with the one that's underneath them all. If God can give new life to our bodies, such that in the end when Christ returns, we too will be raised from the grave to receive a body like his that will never face decay or or suffering. If he can do that, if he can give life to our dead souls even now, can he not give new life to our dead and dysfunctional relationships? To that dead marriage that 
Most people have written off a long time ago. It's dead. It's gone. Put it in the grave. If God is the kind of God who can raise things out of the grave, what can he do for those kinds of problems? Through the cross and resurrection of Christ. What can he do through that struggle that I have with sin? These things I keep doing and I know I don't want to do them. I want to, I want to serve the Lord, but instead I keep doing these things. If God can give the power of new life to my soul, can he not bring my life into conformity with that and give me freedom? And joyful obedience. Could his spirit not even bring healing to our broken bodies? If God can make us, can he not remake us? Can he not bring healing? Do we pray like God is going to bring healing? Do we believe him to do that? And what he does not do now, in advance, he promises to do in the end. When the Lord returns. When the promise of God's new creation and life becomes a completed reality. The day when, as Isaiah puts it, God will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. May we have that faith to trust the Lord, to wait on him, to rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There's only one thing more powerful than death in this world. And that's the resurrection of the dead. If this is your hope, I pray that you would know the peace and joy of belonging to a risen Savior who ever lives to plead for you, to answer prayers, to draw you closer to himself. If this is not your hope or you have questions about it, I would love to talk to you. I'd love to grab coffee this week or or, or some other time. But even so, I urge you this morning... Take hold of Jesus by faith. Take hold of Christ by faith. Confess your sin to God. Put aside any other would-be saviors, all those other things you're holding on to that you think will give you life and you think will make you right with God. Put aside all other would-be saviors and take hold of Christ and Christ alone. Let this Resurrection Sunday be the day when your new life in Christ begins. That's my plea and my prayer this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that with you we have a hope that is more powerful than death. A hope that you really can and do change lives. Lord, we've seen testimony to that in several ways this morning. We long for you to do that in our hearts. And even even as many of us have met you and have trusted you, yet we still long to be conformed to the image of your Son. Would you continue to shine the light of your gospel, the light of your grace on our lives and change us? Would you give this hope that we've talked about this morning, may it become a tangible hope, not just for those who who come to Westgate or any number of churches in this area. May that hope spread out, Lord, May others who are living in darkness and brokenness and longing 
for a rescue, longing for a Savior, may you show yourself to them as well, Lord. May you receive the glory you deserve as our risen King and give new life to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.